Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sermon text today is from Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus who was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of wicked men. Today is Trinity Sunday, and as such, we're answering this question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to come down to earth, take on flesh, and be crucified on a cross for the sins of the world? Why did all that have to happen? Couldn't God, in his infinite power, just say, everything's forgiven, it's great? Why couldn't he just declare that? Why did Jesus have to come down to earth to die for the sins of the world? And as I mentioned to you in the beginning of the service, we're actually going to answer that question from the perspective of the Father, and then the Spirit, and then finally, the Son. So why did Jesus have to die? Looking at it from the Father's perspective, maybe the first answer won't be the most intellectually satisfying, but it is the simplest and easy to remember. Why did Jesus have to die? Because God the Father said so. That's why. (laughs) He had to die because God the Father said so. And we're going to push deeper into that question, but... I'm actually going to pause right here, even at the very beginning of this sermon, just to note that sometimes when we come across these difficult questions, we have to sort of humble ourselves and recognize that there are only things that we know that come from Scripture. And we have to trust that God has revealed what he wants us to know, and there are some things where we're not going to be able to see all ends behind every question that we might have. And so the first answer is the simplest, it's also the easiest, From God the Father's perspective, why did Jesus have to die? Because God said so. We have Paul say in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that this Jesus was crucified and killed according to the definite plan, knowledge of God. That this was no accident. That Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of our world was in fact a part of an intentional plan. And we can actually see that even looking all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We have there the story of the Garden of Eden where God made the first people, Adam and Eve. And there it was that they were told not to take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as you might know the story, they were tempted into taking that fruit. They partook of the fruit. And then God came looking for them, right? And they're hiding from God. But God finds them. He speaks to them. And he also speaks to the serpent who is Satan. And he gives each a curse, And in giving them a curse, he says this, that Eve is going to have an offspring. And this offspring is going to be different from all the other children of the world because this offspring will defeat Satan. Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, we read that God says about this offspring that he will crush your head, speaking to the snake. Or or he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So what does that mean? This serpent will inject his poison, the poison of death, into this offspring. At the same time, this child, this one who would come from Eve, will crush the serpent. Even from the very beginning, the offspring of Eve, the one who is to come, is the one who would need to die. And we see this prefigured all over the Old Testament, time and time again. We see the sacrifices that God said, needed to be made for the forgiveness of sins. You have the unblemished lamb that would be brought forward or the scapegoat that the priest would press the burdens of the people upon and then send out of Jerusalem and exile that goat out into the wilderness as it carried the burdens of Israel. 
All of these were prefiguring of the sacrifices or the, of the sacrifice that Christ would make when he would come. But there's more than that. As we look at the prophets, we might see a guy like Jonah. Jonah, who denied his call to, to preach to the city of Nineveh, was thrown off of a boat because God caused a storm and the, and the sailors were afraid. And as Jonah is sinking down, we hear him describe him going under the depths of the sea. And he's talking about seaweed being wrapped around his head and his body like a burial shroud. Jonah says that he's basically as good as dead. But the fish that swallows him spits him back up on a dry land. After going through that death-like experience, he's standing on dry ground and he begins to preach a message of repentance to the city of Nineveh. Just as Christ would do as he was swallowed by death and would rise again. And then you have Isaiah who, who preaches about a, a suffering servant who will come would be stricken, smitten, and afflicted as we like to sing, would be pierced for our transgressions, but not abandoned to the grave. God had said it in many times throughout the Old Testament and in so many different ways that this Christ would come and he would indeed die. But why death? Why death? I mean, couldn't he have done something else you know maybe just tell us all to you know change our attitudes get our acts together why death we go back again to genesis chapter 3 we see right away that the penalty for sin is death and genesis chapter 3 when the story is opening about the fall of adam and eve into sin right away we hear that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is in the middle of the garden and anybody who takes this fruit they eat it, they will die. Already, even for that, the penalty of sin is death. That seems harsh. It seems like a high penalty for stealing fruit. Why would it be death? God is holy. God is pure. By nature of his character, God cannot abide the presence of sin. And if that's kind of a confusing thought, if you're wondering why can't God just sort of ignore it or whatever, think about it like this. If I were to take a cup of some of the finest bottled water, not the stuff that, that tells you it comes from an Appalachian spring but really comes from a tap, but from the stuff that actually comes from an Appalachian spring, and I put that in front of you, having paid my $4 for it, I would put it in front of you right here and if I were to open, take the lid off of that bottle, and if I were to reveal to you that I had an eyedropper in my hand and then drop just a couple drops of poison into that water, what would you call it? You'd call it poison. You would call it poison. You wouldn't call it mostly good water. You would call it poison. You wouldn't say don't drink the poison part. You would say don't drink the poison. So it is then that God cannot abide Sin. It cannot be in his presence. Our God is a holy God. To tolerate sin would be to change who he is. So then, the penalty for sin is death. But why not somebody else's death? Why his son? Why did it have to be his only son, Jesus? Well, I'll tell you, there's actually something that helps us with this, and it happened just this morning. 
I saw something on my way here to church that I knew I wanted to include in this sermon, and that just goes to show you that you know when you start writing a sermon, you're never done until you deliver it. So whenever I got here, after seeing what I saw, I grabbed my pen and crammed it into the donut napkin that I write these things on. And so on the way here, early in the morning, I saw a police officer driving in front of me. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he turns on his lights. And there's no car in front of him. There's no construction. There's no accident. It's just me and him on Highway 129 driving towards Gainesville, and all of a sudden his lights come on. Well, I can't figure out what's going on, but as soon as his lights come on, I do what I've always done anytime I see police lights and I'm driving. I grab my clerical collar and I put it in right away. <laughs> you guys should get one. I'm just saying, you should get one. They don't ask if you can prove that you're a pastor. They just, they, they fall for it every time. And so anyhow, he didn't come to my car, actually, but he pulled over to the middle of the road, still with his lights on, parked his vehicle, got out, and started walking into the other lane. I'm saying, what is going on? But he did that because it turns out there's a little turtle there on the road. I know. Oh, what a delicious lunch. And so, oh, so hungry. And so he got out of the police car and he picked up the turtle and he carried it over to the grass. He placed it safely on the ground there, out of harm's way. Just seconds after he got back into his car, a car came whizzing down the road where he was standing. This is the Father's love for you. Love of the Father, also part of his character, is a self-giving, sacrificing, hands-on, get-in-the-middle-of-the-problem kind of love. God the Father sent his son Jesus to be your brother, be there for you, to carry your burdens, to take upon your pain, and no one less than his son would do, because no one else was capable of communicating that kind of love from God the Father but Jesus Christ. So God sent his son Jesus that you might know just exactly how deep and wide his love is for you. <clears throat> Sometimes we have some baggage from our families. Sometimes we come into days like this with regret. There, there are people who don't attend church on Sundays like this because Father's Day is a painful thought. Their dad left them. Their dad abused them. Their dad neglected them. Maybe some other tragedy happened in the family that makes it difficult. There are even, and fortunately this is not my experience, it's not my experience, but there are even some pastors who find it difficult to come to church on this day too because of the same reasons. But here in God the Father sending his son Jesus Christ, we know what it means to be a part of at least his family, even if our earthly families fall apart. God sent his son be your brother, to lay down his life for you, to pay the price for your adoption into his family, to pick you up out of harm's way when you've been run over by sin, and put you on ground next to him, his Father in heaven. But let's ask the Spirit this question. Why did Jesus take on flesh and come to die cross. Why did Jesus do that? 
Well, the Spirit actually is, is this person of the Trinity that we really aren't all that comfortable talking about in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, it doesn't really, he doesn't really come up a whole lot. And he should, definitely more, but, but there's just sort of this nature about the Spirit that is always sort of that odd person out of the Trinity. I think a lot of that is because the Holy Spirit's job, I mean, you can call it neglect, and that might be true, and you can call it that, that, that the whole gospel isn't being preached, and sometimes that happens too, but really I think some of it is just the fact that the Holy Spirit's job is simply to point to Jesus. The Spirit never points to himself. The Spirit points to Jesus. So oftentimes when we're contemplating the things of God, we're thinking of Christ. And we're doing that actually in the Spirit, not knowing it, because the Spirit is just there in the back of the room, in the back of our minds, saying, look that way. Not at me. Look that way. Look to Jesus. And that's exactly what he does here on Pentecost. Last week you heard the reading about how the Spirit came in a mighty wind and shook the house that the apostles were in. And, and all of a sudden, tongues of fire come and descend upon these same apostles as they're standing outside of the temple in Jerusalem. And it just so happened that people from every nation had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, which was, in those days, a harvest festival. And so there's this great crowd that witnesses this wonder that the Spirit creates. But when faith and repentance is created in the, in the crowd's heart, they're not seeing some manifestation of the Holy Spirit standing in front of them preaching the sermon. What are they seeing? They're seeing the Apostle Peter stand up and speak in the power of the Spirit. What does Peter do? He tells them about Christ. In, this whole, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he tells them about Christ crucified. How Christ had fulfilled the Scriptures and had come now crucified and to die, and also to rise again. All of that was done by the inspiration and power of the Spirit. And we hear Jesus talk about the Spirit in John chapter 16. He says that the Spirit will come concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Concerning sin, what sin? Unbelief. This Jesus who died convicts the world of its unbelief. It was the Roman centurion standing before the cross who very much in the power of the Spirit after Jesus died said, truly this was the Son of God. We see Jesus, or rather when the Spirit points us to Christ crucified, we too mourn our unbelief. We are convicted of that. The Spirit comes to convict concerning righteousness that this Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, that, that he was vindicated as the one who was innocent, dying for the sins of the world, dying the death of the criminal, and yet now he rose from the dead, having lived a righteous life in perfect obedience to the Father, and now he sits on the throne of God. The Spirit points us to the cross and then to the empty cross to see that Jesus has risen and ascended into heaven. Concerning judgment, Spirit points us out, to, points us to the cross to say that our old masters have been defeated. Sin, death, and Satan have been conquered by the cross and have been judged by the cross. The Spirit simply tells us the truth. The Spirit of God tells us the truth. And pointing us to the cross reveals the truth about who we are and what we have done. And just like the people there standing in front of Peter on that sermon on Pentecost, by the time he's done, we are cut to the heart and we look down 
and notice that there is a hammer in one hand and a nail in the other. Just as they crucified Jesus, so also have we. The question, though, on Pentecost Sunday is this. What shall we do? What should we do? And if you take this question and you ask it out to the entire world and say, what should we do? If you asked every religion, if you asked every person on the street, everyone who is wise, every philosopher, they might give you answers like this. They might tell you to try harder, to do better, to find the goodness that's in you and just build that up and nurture it. To not worry about it because you'll get a second chance. Or to even turn yourself in and face the music. But that's not what the Spirit says through Peter. When the Spirit cuts us down and convicts us by the law, the Spirit also tells us, to repent and be baptized and to receive the fullness of God's grace and mercy poured out from you on the cross. The world expects nothing out of you but your output. From little on it happens. As a child you get involved maybe in sports and it seems that the coach is only interested in you for what you can do for the team. Life is easier in school when you can obey the teacher and get good grades. It's the same at work. How many times have you thought that you had a boss who was also a friend, maybe, or even another coworker, and all they were interested in was your ability to make money for the company? Friends and family oftentimes have these kinds of relationships as well. Our world is an output world. And when we're asking, what should we do, the answer is so often, more, more, more. The Spirit points us to the cross and says, this is input. This is a gift. This is the blood of Jesus for you. Jesus, why did you have to die? I think if he were to stand right here and answer that question, he might not give you this erudite, theological, academic answer, although I'm sure he certainly could, after all. He's Jesus. But I think, actually, he might say something like this. I had to die because, well, I was born. Yeah, it's that simple. I had to die because I was born, because I took on human flesh. You see, there, there are some in this world who assign personhood and give the status of life to an infant only after it's been out of the womb for so much time. There are some who are so disturbed about who they are that they, that they go through this long journey in their lives that they even go to the extent of changing their own gender. There are some who work and are always pursued by this feeling of discontent and meaninglessness for all that they do. There are some in this world who are just saddled with chronic pain and hurt and addiction and anxiety and depression and it will never go away. Jesus Christ was born of human flesh. And by doing so, he sanctified every part of life from beginning to end. From how you were born, to the way that you were born, to who you are. Jesus Christ did not come to give a new solution for happiness or to change who you are and, and, and what you do in your job and in your life so much as he did to give you a new heart, a heart that believes in him, a heart that beats for God the Father, desires him alone, 
and knows that the answer for peace, joy, happiness, and wellness in this world is found first in him and him alone and not to all of these other things. Jesus, why did you come to die? He would tell you maybe to bear your burden, be your friend, be your savior, let you know that you are loved when you feel so despised by the world. Let you know that there's a point, the suffering that you go through, because he has even sanctified your suffering as he himself has suffered. He came to teach you how to live, and even how to die in obedience to the Father, how to live in hope. That just as Jesus rose from the dead in human flesh, you also rise like your brother did. Jesus came to die that you might die to sin also. He came to rise again that you might have new life in him.